I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. So, welcome back to Encountering Silence, and this episode this week has us looking forward to something I'm really intrigued about, guys. Silence Heroes. And I mean that broadly. I think we've talked about this uh, before. We're trying to talk about topics that we could uh, discuss, and one of the topics came up was Silence Heroes. And so I want to just kind of stir the pot a little bit and suggest that that could be anything... uh, any of us feels inclined to share. It could be a a religious person, it could be a poet, it could be an artist, but somebody who, for you, captures, either captures uh, the relationship to silence or inspires you or has maybe even been a model, possibly, of silence. And so I'm kind of curious, uh, who are, or at least one, silence hero that you have? Okay, so my silence hero is, as I'm sure you guys both know, Thomas Merton. And, you know, the way Thomas Merton went into the monastery during wartime, the way he kind of lived his life and his writing as a form of resistance and protest, um, I saw as an evolution into the silence, right, and into this encounter with deeper and deeper silence. And towards the end of his life, how he chose to go live in the hermitage, just off site of where the monastery is in Kentucky. And then the ways that he just drew deeper and deeper into these moments of opting to be alone, you know, by, by way of the hermitage. And he writes a lot about that in day of the day of a stranger, um, which is a short little book of essays. And another one of the things, you know, he wrote, he wrote profuse amounts of work on silence, of course, but He did say, you know, may we all grow in grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed on the center of our being. And I know I read another time about something he wrote in Dave a Stranger. And that was kind of about his experience of encountering silence in the woods, um, where he says, one might say, I had decided to marry the silence of the forest. The sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. Out of the heart of of that dark warmth comes the secret that is only heard in silence. But it is the root of all the secrets that are whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. So perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness, which is the center of all other loves. And of course, this quote goes on, and I, I quoted it in a previous episode, but he has been my silence hero because... I always, whenever I read this, I felt a strong camaraderie that, yes, perhaps I have that same obligation. Perhaps I have that same obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness. And where he goes on to say that is 
at the center of all other loves, I've always felt very strongly connected to that. You know, this idea that, yes, I see how this increases my capacity and my ability to love in the rest of my life, that, that my encounter with silence is in effect an encounter with increasing my ability to love and love better. So I think that that's always been a very strong point to why he's been my silence hero. Wow. Yeah. So powerful. And, and it's, I, uh, I, I resonate too when I hear you say that, that, uh, how it's not just the silence, but how it's also a protest to the noise and the violence of the world that he affect, you know, that he was experiencing. And then at the same time, you know, connecting with nature and connecting it with so uh, the interconnectedness with all everybody else and everything else, you know, all of crea- yeah. all of creation. It's such a, a powerful image. It's uh, mm-hmm. Carl, I wonder, I'm curious where you're going to go. Well, I want to cheat. I, I want mm. I want to tell you about two heroes. Yeah, well, that's oh, a cheater. Oh, come on. I was about <laughs> yeah. to name drop Mary Oliver, but go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, we can all if, if you if you get both Merton and Oliver, then because I, I kind of have the theory and the practice. Great. And for the theory, I want to mention uh, Sarah Maitland. Sarah is a British novelist. She, I actually first encountered her because she wrote uh, several books on feminist theology. So she's kind of a, a lay, a lay feminist theologian. But you know, I, I later learned that really her, um, you know, her name, her her claim to fame is actually as a, as a novelist. But about, I guess it was about ten years ago. Let me look at the copyright date. She comes out with this book. Uh, let's see. Yeah. 2008. So nine years ago now she comes out with this book called simply a book of silence and it's a memoir. Right. And it really talks about, well, it's kind of a memoir. It's a memoir plus because she she talks about her journey into adulthood. And of course she, she was married and she had children and, and then eventually the marriage ends. She, she was married to an Anglican priest, but, but then at midlife, she becomes a Catholic. So she's kind of on her own spiritual journey. But what she finds is that as she moves into her older years, she becomes increasingly hungry for silence. And she little by little by little just begins to peel away the external noisemakers. You know, first thing to go is the television and then the stereo, and then the radio. And she, she ends up living in this little house out in the heaths, you know, in England, and it's just the middle of nowhere. And, and she describes with such poetic beauty, you know, she's, she's a true writer, writer's writer, which is this lyrical, you know, description of kind of sinking into this deeply, deeply silent life and, and how it impacted her, how it impacted her spiritually, psychologically, all of that. But then the book goes on, like I said, it's a memoir plus it goes on to really reflect on the role that silence has in people's lives. And she looks at a number of interesting kind of doorways into silence. She looks at, at people who sail around the world solo 
you know, and so you can only imagine, you know, it's just you and your sailboat and you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, and, and somewhere all you have, you know, was a, a, a CB radio and, and the radio no longer can pick anything up and you are in silence. And, um, and apparently there are people who've done that, you know, and they, they didn't survive the trip. You know, they, they right. find the boat, the body's gone right, right. and, and they look at, the, they look at the log and the person basically went nuts out there, you know? So it's not like, you know, there's, there's kind of a scary dimension to that degree of silence as well. But then she also talks about the desert mothers and fathers, you know, there's just, it's just looking at it from such a number of perspectives. So Sarah Maitlin is my theoretician of silence now for the practice of silence. I, and, and this one's fun because this is somebody who I've met. I would go with Martin Laird, the Augustinian um, priest who, who teaches up at Villanova outside of Philadelphia. A very, very lovely man. Um, I think a true contemplative. He's a scholar of early church history. But he wrote, again, probably about 10 years ago or so, wrote this little manual of Christian contemplation called um, Into the Silent Land. And I discovered him because my dear friend, Brother Elias, at the monastery uh, at the time was novice master, and he had all the novices read this book. So, you know, my thinking was, if it's good enough for Travis novices, it's good enough for me. And so, and, and, and the book is just luminous. And what I love about it in particular, you know, there's a lot of books out there about how to do contemplative prayer. You know, you, you pay attention to your posture, you pay attention to your breath. You, you find a prayer word or a scripture verse or an icon that you can focus your attention on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Laird does better than anybody else that I've read about guiding the reader through navigating the interior noise. So it's not just about stripping away the exterior noise, but then learning how to, how to meet the interior noise and to acknowledge that there's always silence beneath and beyond whatever's going on inside of our, our hearts and minds. So uh, he has just deeply, his teaching has deeply um, strengthened or enhanced my own contemplative prayer. And, um, and, and like I say, I, I've had the good fortune to meet Martin and he's the real deal. You know, I, I think he lives what he writes about. So, so those are my two, wow. Sarah Maitland, Martin Thornton. So. Yeah. Well, these are all good choices. And, you know, surprise, surprise that uh, because we're all interested in silence, um, I know all three of those. Uh, those aren't new mm. names to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 um, and their works, et cetera. And we could have conversations on, on all of them, actually, because I've read all these books. So we could <laughs> we could have these conversations. You know, it's it'll be no surprise. You guys know me and it would be no surprise who I choose. Mm. But I was thinking about it before this episode, like, do I really want to say this person and do I want to say somebody else instead? And and as I really thought about it, I said, no, I really I do want to say this person. And I don't have to cheat, actually, because uh, my the person I choose is both a a great theoretician and practice person. Um, And so my person is going to be the um, Anglican solitary uh, Maggie Ross. Uh, which is a is actually a, a pen name, um, uh, you know, for a person mm-hmm. who's taken a vow, basically. Which I love. When I stumbled upon Maggie online, I was deep in the work of my dissertation writing and doing research that basically 
to talk about it in in, a, in lay settings and and to make it so it's not only four people in the world understand. Basically, a recovery of silence as a way of knowing the world and that how that's deeply essential for theology, Christian theology. And while Christians have always kind of pointed that out, my my dissertation was really engaged in that and also in dialogue with other religious traditions, um, trying to understand how Christians do that as opposed to, say, uh, a Buddhist tradition, which I was in dialogue with, and to see the similarities and the differences there. And I stumbled upon Maggie's work online just because I had done a Google search looking for a particular topic, and then I found her blog and read this blog and was just blown away, absolutely, utterly blown away. And reached out to her. I made a comment on the blog, and she responded pretty quickly. And then the next thing you know, she asked me, would you be willing to email? And then I said, oh, my, you know, this is spectacular. So then we emailed, and then the next thing we know, we're Skyping, and we're conversation. And what turned, what started off was, you know, just kind of intellectual interest turned into kind of, I mean, at least from, at my end, uh, a deep, you know, appreciation of her work and her practice because she had taken a vow, an ancient vow that you know hardly anyone had taken, and was re- I never really asked her in, to confirm this for me. But the vow she took is something very similar to the vow that Julian of Norwich took, and uh, to basically an anchorite vow, which in the ancient church was a way of locking yourself off in a small room attached to a church, walled into a room somewhere. And she took a vow that was some something similar, and she took that vow to the the Archbishop of Canterbury, who at the time was Rowan Williams. And so she didn't have to lock herself away in the church, but she took a vow of of kind of deep silence uh, and silence practice. And the way that she arranged for that was that she was going to spend a certain amount of time in silence and quiet away, and then sometimes where she could engage the world through writing and through teaching. And so to see her uh, you know, to talk with her, to read her books, that I've read everything she's, you know, she's published, um, and I've hunted down a lot of things, and she's also shared a lot of the stuff she's published with me, and I've been able to read things that were published in magazines over the years, etc. And she just profoundly was, it was one of the first people I met, uh, contemporary people, that like was able to talk about silence. Uh, very similar, Carl, to the way you described Martin Laird, she was able to talk about silence from this interior space because she had spent so many years in practice and had struggled with such things. Like so, when I, you know, when I read Martin Laird, it was the recovery of like the desert fathers and mothers and the struggle with thoughts and these okay. kind of thoughts. And again, Maggie had these kinds of insights as well. But then at the same time, she had been on a, a path, her own journey of trying to articulate this, feeling like there was a missing piece in the theological lens. And so she was writing her book, which now is out, A Silence, A User's Guide. And Volume 1 came out just a couple years ago, and Volume 2 will come out early next year. Yay! Exactly. So if you guys did not know that, it will be out soon. She she handed the manuscript in a few months ago, um, like a month or two ago. So... They're, Wonderful. So volume two will be out, I think, probably by spring of April, of 2018. So, so yeah, so she is able to, on in one level, be very lyrical and poetic in some places. I read her memoir on Seasons of Death and Life, uh, which I absolutely was shocked when I read it. it. It it actually put me in a silent place for days. It's a one of the, I've never, well, I wouldn't say never, but 
other than poetry, it's very rare that I can read a prose work where that I just feel catapulted as if I had done the meditation or, or had done silence myself. I was reading a memoir that kind of put me in a place that for days I walked around completely catapulted into this other realm just because I was reading. I, I just ate that memoir up. And I remember crying, just profoundly crying at some places because she said things that touched places that sounded that I recognized. And so as Cassidy was talking about Thomas Merton feeling a kinship, I felt like all of a sudden um, that, you know, somehow this was my sister, that I knew Maggie Mm -hmm. was expressing something so profoundly true about my own life. And I could go on and on just like I know you two could. But I mean, that's that's really one of the the heroes. And I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. So I would like to say, I think one of the questions I would ask Cassidy, why so you told me why Thomas Merton is so important for you. Uh, how can I'd like you to try to convince someone that Thomas Merton is someone that they should read? Because I find when we really are passionate about something and that that speaks to our heart, I, I, I'm not asking you to persuade us like a salesperson. I'm trying. I want you to pitch to me why is Thomas Merton get silence correct? Because I think if you say that to us you will unpack a little bit more for us why, what Merton does for all of us in a way that's very intimate. Wow. Uh. <laughs> well, um, is it okay if I, if I jump on in? Um, yeah. Because what I would like to do in response to that, Kevin, is um, share with you a little bit from Sarah Maitland's A Book of Silence. Perfect. And, you know, kind of let let her speak for herself. And then I I actually have a very brief quote from Martin Laird, too. So, So first from Sarah Maitland. My attempts to describe my experiences of silence, even to people who wanted to hear because they love me, forced me to feel that silence itself resists all attempts to talk about it, to try to theorize, explain or even describe it. This is not, I think, because silence is without meaning. It is out with language. Out with, O-U-T-W-I-T-H, is a wonderful Scottish word for which standard English appears to have no exact equivalent. Out with means outside of, not within the circumference of something else. Without is necessarily negative and suggests that something is lacking. So it's like the word without, but turned inside out. That's beautiful. Great phrase. Then she goes on, I began to sense that all our contemporary thinking about silence sees it as an absence or a lack of speech or sound, a totally negative condition. But I was not experiencing it like that. In the growth of my garden, in my appreciation of time and the material world, in the way I was praying, in my new sense of well-being and simple joy, all of which grew more clear the more silent I was. I did not see lack or absence, but a positive presence. Silence may be outside or beyond the limits of descriptive or narrative language, but that does not necessarily mean that silence is lacking anything. Perhaps it is a real, separate, actual thing, an ontological category of its own, not a lack of language, but other than, 
different from language, not an absence of sound, but the presence of something which is not sound. Um, I think I'll stop there. I, of course, I could go on and on. But, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, I hope you'll do this as well with Maggie. Right. Because I see echoes of what I've seen in some of Maggie's writing. That's right. In there. Of course, she's speaking as a novelist, whereas Maggie speaks as a theologian. So it's, right. so it's two di- different forms of discourse, but I think they're pointing to the same thing. Yes. And, and this, you know, one of, one of my little taglines is that silence is not an absence, silence is a presence. And you can see ground zero for that right, right there right. in, in Sarah Maitland. Wonderful. So. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. Cassidy, you got a you got a thing you want to say or? Yeah. So, in circling back to Merton, and what's so interesting is that, again, like you were saying, Carl, all of these people entirely relate, right? right. All of these words, all of these sentiments, like yep. all of these thoughts and concepts, they're all centered on you know the sacredness of silence, on silence's ability to evolve us, to grow us, to help us find our true selves, as Merton might say, right? So one of the things I would like to read is from Thomas Merton's book called Love and Living, which I believe, let's see here, was uh, pieced together by Naomi Burton Stone and Brother Patrick Hart. Mm. And there's an essay in here called Creative Silence. And what's interesting is he kind of talks about all the faucets of silence in this. And one of the one of the ways in which I attach to Merton as a silence hero is as a non-Catholic myself, pitching this to someone is quite interesting because, you know, right. here's this Catholic monk right. who's, you know, has all this to say about silence. But, you know, how is that interesting? And I think that, you know, I often reference when I'm talking to someone about Merton, I often reference uh, Walt Whitman's words on contradiction and self-contradiction, right? Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. Mm-hmm. I'm large. I contain multitudes. Right. And this idea, you know, I, I try to explain him as this person that often contradicts himself and he wrote so many things, but he continued to allow himself to evolve. And I believe that he was evolving in the silence, if that makes sense, and growing in the silence. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from this uh, essay on creative silence. Silence has many dimensions. It can be a regression and an escape, a loss of self, or it can be a presence, awareness, unification, self-discovery. Negative silence blurs and confuses our identity, and we lapse into daydreams or diffuse anxieties. Positive silence pulls us together and makes us realize who we are, who we might be, and the distance between these two. Hence, positive silence implies a disciplined choice and that Paul Tillich is called the courage to be. In the long run, the discipline of creative silence demands a certain kind of faith. For when we come face to face with ourselves in the lonely ground of our own being, we confront many questions about the value of our existence, 
the realities of our, of our commitments, the authenticity of our everyday lives. And he goes on in this to talk a lot about the busyness and the constant movement of our lives and how that, recognizing that that doesn't go away um, in this essay. And he goes on to say, with this inner self, we have to, we have to come to terms in silence. That is the reason for choosing silence. In silence, we face and admit the gap between the depths of our being, which we consistently ignore, and the surface, which is untrue to our own reality. We, we recognize the need to be at home with our own selves in order that we may go out and meet others, not just with a mask of affability, but with a real commitment and authentic love. So, I mean, wow. naturally he goes on, right, and talks further about love, and this kind of connects to our previous episode, right, about... Right. Silence is a place of growing in love and, and growing and meeting ourselves and all that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, and so the connection too, if, you know, since we're all uh, quoting, um, I have two small quotes here. The one that I, from the Silence a User's Guide, the closing chapter where she basically asks, after she does a whole thing and, and then she summarizes, like, what would it look like to live a life of silence? Like, what does this mean to actually live this life? And, um, and then she says, When a person goes into silence, all the compass points by which he or she normally navigates are suspended. Contradictions, paradoxes, life events, usually classified as good or evil, all live together in the silence. Nothing is wasted. With the changed perspective that silence gives, discernment, judgment, and all the rest become far more provisional. Giving up judgment does not mean giving up discernment, the critical thinking necessary for vigilance, but there must always be an openness to receiving a radically altered perspective. And I think that's what uh, she focuses on, and this, this is what killed me in her memoir. On page 189, after she describes this whole thing, and she I, I won't ruin it for people who want to read the book, but, I mean, you know, she has this, this kind of event happens in life, and something happens, and you're not sure, and I won't tell you how it comes. You have to watch, read the book to know what, what this is about. But she is talking about an event, and there's a possibility of life and death. And um, so then she says, We pray presumptuously for miracles, not realizing the consequences, without pity for the poor victim. We speak glibly of resurrection. Are you really ready for resurrection? Don't believe it for a minute. No one can be ready. Maybe we can prepare for death, but it is infinitely more difficult to prepare for life. And that is the problem. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So what is, well, you throw words around like resurrection or everlasting life or what do you, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, oh. I, it rem reminds me of talking with a monk at New Mallory in Iowa. And when I asked him about silence, his, his response is if, as if he, this is what he's always, always thought of silence was, was, you know, it's, it's the. It's the tomb of Christ. It is it is the place of infinite possibility. Yeah. Right. And it just it blew my mind. I mean, just, you know, when when we talk about silence, we're also talking about these really big, big concepts and these really big, unfathomable thoughts, right? Right. It's the depth. It's the 
it's who we are. It's, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. Well, let me, um, let me stir that pot a little with this really very brief quote from Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Now this is again, I'll, I'll just say this, that, um, this is, this is, he's speaking as a Christian to Christians. So he's using very Christian language. But, okay, that's all I need to say. The grace of salvation, the grace of Christian wholeness that flowers in silence, dispels this illusion of separation. For when the mind is brought to stillness and all our strategies of acquisition have dropped, a deeper truth presents itself We are and have always been one with God, and we are all one in God. Yep. Amen. (laughs) So, um, yeah, you know, and that's right back there. Are you ready for a resurrection? Don't believe it for a minute. Because when I read this, it excites me and it kind of scares me at the same time. And I hope that that scare is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because yeah. it's as Cassidy just said, if, if, if it's the tomb or the womb, it's the potential of all things, right? Amen. You know, right. I mean, right. it's the, t- the it's, right. it's, and this is where uh, like great monastic writers, you know, in the Christian tradition will spin off and play off the whole um, the tomb of, of of Easter, you know, somehow connected also with the next coming of Christ, and also connected with the womb of Mary. Somehow, all of that interbound up together in some strange. That, in other words, how do you talk about this unless you give it an image, some poetic kind of image, and th- you have to grasp at it. And in the Christian tradition, the cross, the womb. You know, these places are the only places that actually get at this, you know. Which kind of ties in with our conversation last time about the challenges of silence and uh, this this kind of dialectic between silence right. and language or silence and image. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there's a level on which for language to be sane, it needs to be suffused with silence. And for silence to be accessible it needs to be at least held in language. Right. And, and this is, you know, the, this tension is always going to be something that I think it's part of the human condition, but to be a human being who wishes to enter deeply into the cave of silence, uh, our Sherpa will be language. Right. And, and, you know, and yet we want the Sherpa to be quiet. Too. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so we, and I think we need we need yeah. the commentary and we need not the commentary. No, I mean, I think you're great. I think you're absolutely right. You know, we need a guide, but a good guide doesn't say, "Hey, look at me the whole time." The guide says, "Hey, go look at the mountain or hey, look at the uh, I'm bringing you out into the forest, so go look at the forest. Don't look at me, you know? And if language just spends all its time saying, "Hey, look at me" or "Hey, be caught up in the noise," That's going to be the problem, you know. As as Merton might say on that in uh, Raids in the Unspeakable, he says, let us be proud that we are not experts in anything. Let us be proud of the words that are given to us for nothing, 
not to teach anyone, not to confute anyone, not to prove anyone absurd, but to point beyond all objects into the silence where nothing can be said. There you go. We are not persuaders. We are children of the unknown. We are the ministers of silence that is needed to cure all victims of absurdity who lie dying of contrived joy. At the very end, he says, for violence changes nothing, but love changes everything. We are stronger than the bomb. Oh, this is when... Beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. during the time of uh, his protests against the atomic bomb and nuclear weapons and... Wow. This this is from uh, Message to Poets, an essay he did in February of 1964, which can be found both in Raids in the Unspeakable and also uh, the literary essays of Thomas Merton. But that's a money quote there. The violence changes nothing and love Mm, changes everything. Love changes everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. But but see how I mean how he spoke into it, right? He he allowed it that to be born from the silence, right? Right. It was birthed. It was in the womb, so to speak, right? It right. was it came that love even came as a solution came from the silence. Wow, people. These conversations are so <laughs> deep. <laughs> well, no, I'd, I'd like to reflect just briefly on, um, you know, and again, we've already touched on how each one of these these heroes reminds us of the other heroes, that there is there is a kind of kind of neighborhood of silence or of mystery where they all seem to be, you know, bringing us us into. But I think what what I take away, I mean, whether we're talking about Mary Oliver, Thomas Merton, uh, Sarah Maitland, uh, but but also Maggie Ross and um, and Martin Laird. All all five of these people are are gifted writers. They're gifted. They have gifted voices. They they encounter silence, and then they bring the encounter back with with an eloquence that I think we all find just just in itself to be a work of art. And I think this is a challenge maybe for for all of us. And I'm not saying that. Every one of us necessarily has to be a writer just like Thomas Merton. In fact, I would say that, that our job is to be the writers that we are called to be. There was on, on the Internet recently, somebody had tweeted out, they said, I so much want to be a writer like J.K. Rowling, but I can't even finish my book. And J.K. Rowling, bless her heart, tweeted back to this person and said, hmm. please don't be a writer like J.K. Rowling. Please be a writer like yourself. Your mm. voice matters. Now, please finish your book. Right. And, yes. um, you know, and I and, and, and of course, all this all this writer's friend said, now you got to finish the book because J.K. Rowling herself <laughs> said you got to. Talk about accountability. But, <laughs> but um, you know, what what is that that quote? And I, I can't remember who it comes from. It's one of the poets. But, you know, what are you going to do with your one wild life? You know, your, mm, your one. Mary one Oliver. Mary, Mary Oliver. Oliver. Exactly. Yeah. Your one wild, wild and, and beautiful wild and, and crazy life. life. Wild and precious life. And and so so I think that, you know, what we have in common, we have been, it's a terrible image, but I can't think of a better one, you know, bitten by the bug of silence, that, that, that silence has, has made its presence known in our hearts. And so we, we are answering that call. And now the question becomes, having, having seen that the waters of the well of silence are so nourishing and, and so refreshing and literally life-giving, then 
how do we bring that back to others? You know, and not everybody's called to be a poet like Mary Oliver or to be a philosopher like Thomas Merton or a, a historian like Martin Laird. You know, everybody has has a different ministry. And it may not involve words at all. It may just simply involve love. It may just involve mm. compassion and kindness and, and, and being present with people who are refugees or homeless or imprisoned or whatever yeah. each of our individual situations. But, but I think what I'm hearing is the reason why we picked these five people or six people, no, five, to, to be our heroes is because they are doing something with their wild and precious life and I think that inspires at least me, and I'm assuming maybe you guys as well, yeah. to um, to respond. Yeah, and and just it connects with like past episodes because when we were talking about uh, silence and and the problems that it faces, and and I talked about family life. What's interesting enough that connects exactly with what Carl's saying here is is that actually we're all poets of our own lives, and so if we can figure out. Uh, really what we're allowing for is we're allowing for our our own selves to come forward and actually speak and so with your life can you can you visit the silent space and 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 allow you to self to step forward and then express that you know bring it into the world embody that is is yeah. really the calling and so whether the calling is as simple as just being a husband or a wife or a, a child or a you know a teacher whatever you are just just be that and and actually allow for that to happen in in way that's that's truthful that's truthful to who you really are no image no noise don't let the anxiety voice be the voice that guides you necessarily it's not the only voice there so there has to be the silence has to have its place too to allow all the voices as maggie said to be held in contradiction to hold all that together and to and to walk forward when I teach theology in my classes and, my, and I ask the question all the time, what is a human being? What is a human being? And we always get, and everybody's trying to answer that question. And I just turn and I look at them and I go, human beings are a question. They're a question Ooh. to the universe. So what, what's your question? You know, let it come forth. And I, I love what you said and how it ties in to our previous episode as we, as we keep saying. But this idea that you know, when you really meet silence, when you really encounter silence, it reminds you that you're good enough as is whatever you're doing, whoever you are, it reminds you that you're good enough because it is a place of love. It is a place of self encounter. It is a place of, you know, the encounter of, of the divine of God for me. So yeah, I think that that really resonates and connects with the, with the previous episode about just that flailing, right? That anxious flailing and how silence kind of reminds us, Hey, you're okay. You're good enough. Right. Even, even in the midst of the flailing, even in the midst of the, the messiness Amen. of life. And yeah. that's right. You know, I have to keep being reminded of that over and over and over again, Ugh. but multiple but times true. a day for and me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Constantly. Well, my friends, this is, again, a, a conversation that I'm amazed the twists and turns and, and I kind of anticipated who you were <laughs> going to choose. And yet we still went in different places here that I could never have imagined. Yeah. And so I thank you for your time and I look forward to our time together again. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.